This is Broadcast, Talking TV, recorded at Maple Street Studios. Hello and welcome, I'm Peter White. This week, autumn has kicked in and the sparseness of the summer schedule has been replaced by a jam-packed October with a raft of new shows, particularly a number of high-profile dramas and documentaries. We speak to Jack Thorne, creator of National Treasure, about the Channel 4 show. We investigate how the BBC's recent sitcom season got on and which new comedies, both new and old, have been given full series orders. We explore the virtual reality revolution, which was given a boost this week by Sky, while two senior TV execs started new VR-focused indies, alongside a new documentary SVOD service set up by former BBC Storyville boss Nick Fraser. That's all coming up on Talking TV. Joining me at Maple Street Studios, as always, Kerfuffle founder Stephen D. Wright and broadcast features editor Robin Parker, fresh from interviewing Charlie Brooker and Annabelle Jones about Netflix's reboot of Black Mirror. How was Charlie, Robin? They're a great double act together. He provides many of the self-deprecating gags. She keeps him in check. It seemed to work quite nicely. All very excited about the global rollout of Black Mirror. And we'll have that interview in a couple of weeks. Yeah. Uh, Stephen, how are you? Very good. Quite enjoying the uh, new autumn TV for once. Some TV back on the schedule. Some TV to watch. It's brilliant. Why can't it be like this all the time? <laughs> First this week, BBC Comedy. Shane Allen has ordered a full series of Porridge, starring Kevin Bishop as Fletcher's grandson, as well as full commissions for Motherland, the Sharon Horgan and Graham Linehan penned comedy, starring Diane Morgan and Anna Maxwell-Martin, and BBC Three's A Brief History of Tim, the cerebral palsy comedy from comedian Tim Renkow. Did he make the right choice, Stephen, with, uh, with these, Shane? I think Motherland, definitely. Absolutely, that was a clear winner from, from, as, from one watching. Porridge, I was, I was a bit t- lukewarm on Porridge. Um, actually, that's the name of one of the characters in old Porridge, lukewarm. Uh, no, I was a bit sort of, meh. you know, I like Kevin Bishop. Um, it's, it seemed to have scope, certainly, as a, it can go places. But I didn't think it was as good as I oh, being served. But then it's just a personal thing. A lot of people had a kind of Marmite thing with they love porridge, hated are uh, uh, you being served. I was the other way around. Shane said that he'd been strangled if he didn't bring back Motherland. That seemed to be the popular choice. I mean, just, it just it was she was so good in it, and it was just it, I don't know. It just really it felt really on it. You know what I mean? Very funny. A lot of character. A lot of great potential. In you know, a, a lot of meat in a half hour thing about childcare. You know, when you think about what it actually was. But just really funny. I mean, it was it was it was such a standout to me. Sharon's coming off quite a hot streak. She's got catastrophe and this and uh, divorce coming up on HBO. She's having quite a good run, isn't she, Robin? Well, if you got a show from her and Graham, unless they really mess it up, which is pretty unlikely, you're going to go for it. And I've heard Graham talk about it is rooted in truth. Mm. Uh, there were two other writers on it as well: um, Graham's wife Helen and Holly Walsh. And I think they they swapped a lot of real life parenting stories, and it shows you you can like as with catastrophe, you can feel the honesty there yeah. uh, and obviously Graham's just good at really big laughs as well so I think that, that as a combination it works really nicely What do you make about Porridge? I was, wasn't too surprised I mean of the original comedies this is probably the most loved and the easiest one to perhaps take against someone rebooting it but it is Dick Clement and Nina Frenet they're perfectly entitled to have another property if they want to and that's what Shane said so we wouldn't have done it if, at all if they hadn't wanted to, to get involved and I thought it had enough nods to the past while trying to be contemporary. I mean, inevitably, the first episode of that, you're just thinking Ronnie Barker, Ronnie Barker, however good Kevin Bishop is. And it's going to take a while to iron that out. If they can sort of move, you know, develop the characters, the new characters they've created, then great. 
what I thought compared to the original is, you know, it's a very shiny sitcom. The original, what was great about the original of its time was shooting in the real prison. Lots of, you know, the, the sort of grainy film. And I think the artificiality of this, weirdly, for a more modern comedy, almost sort of counted against some of the humour. So it'd be interesting if they can get if they can get a little bit of grit to it as well. I think it could. could Did you well. want them to bring any of the others back? You disappointed in his in in not bringing back some of the others? I mean, is it never say never for the others? I don't know. I, I always get the impression there'd probably be one that came out of the the reboots. Are you being served such a big cast? And I think people like Jason Watkins in there who are very much in demand. I think it'd be quite a tall order to get that cast again for a, a recurring series. And it felt like Goodnight Sweetheart didn't really land particularly, and it felt like uh, The Young Hyacinth was a nice holiday treat, one-off, which did something a bit different with the character. And Roy Clark, you know, well into his 90s now, if he doesn't want to do more of that, he doesn't have to do more of that, frankly. Are you disappointed they didn't bring back Goodnight Sweetheart, Stephen? I'm not. <laughs> Fair enough. Uh, Shane said he's going to bring back the sitcom season in a slightly different way. Uh, yeah, that I like the sound of. Yeah, I, I mean, I, like, I liked this whole thing. I thought it was a great thing to do. It was quite difficult to follow it scheduling-wise because they were all over the place. I'm, I was watching on BBC Two and it was on BBC Four and it was, there was quite a bit of, oh, hang on. Um, but as, a, as a, a creative exercise, I thought it was a brilliant thing. Um, you know, the more sitcoms, the better. And, they, because, and it's so hit and miss with sitcoms that, they, or, you know, that's what the BBC should definitely be doing. So, uh, you know, fair play to, to Shane for doing this and, and doing it again, definitely. And not part of the sitcom season, but um, he also said that Fleabag is likely to come back if he can persuade Phoebe Waller-Bridge to, uh, to write some more. What do you think of that, Robin? I mean, inevitably, it's, a, it's, you know, it's an industry hit and it's done pretty well, you know, in ratings and, and, and with the critics. It's different to other comedies in that there's a very a fairly closed narrative to that first series. And it is an adaptation of uh, her original monologue, pretty much all of, it, all of which I understand has been used. So I think, you know, reviving that character who has gone through such a, you know emotional arc over six episodes, I'm not sure whether Phoebe wants to do that. And if she does, that's, that'd be great. But I'm not sure as a viewer, I feel I need more of that. But it was such a strong comic voice. I'd love to see more that she does. Up next, the virtual reality revolution gathered pace this week as Sky launched a dedicated app and two senior broadcasting executives, The Garden's David Wise and former Sky exec John Cassie, established production companies dedicated to the fledgling format. Sky launched an initial slate of around 20 projects with Paul McCartney, David Beckham and boxing champion Anthony Joshua and is also planning to commission around a dozen VR films over the next two years. Uh, is VR going to take off, Stephen? Can we expect you to be dabbling in this, uh, in this format? <sighs> This is when my heart sinks and I suddenly suck on a Verta's original and become old and pensioner-like because this is this is HD and 3D all over again. It's um, It sounds great. Nothing's going to happen. Nobody is going to sit watching a, a TV show with a little headset on. You haven't there. got the headset on when you're I mean, I've done it. I've done it once. So one of these little, you know, somebody showed me and I put it on. It was amazing. But it was like playing a video game. You, you know, took it off after two minutes and didn't go, I want to do that again. So part of me is excited by the, the, the you know the creative sort of uh, endeavour, but the but the more cynical part of me thinks, yeah, bollocks. <laughs> Robin, what do you make of VR? Do you think this is just another uh, tech? Uh, do you think this flash is just, in the pan? Do you think this is another flash in the pan? Well, as a permanent glasses wearer, I must say I find the current the current kit pretty pretty tough to to get to grips with. Um, it still feel, it still does feel like something you do. Um, as part of an experience, it's a no, it's a no, it's a nice novelty thing, and you know, with with an app and stuff, it, there are places it can go. I, I I'm struggling to see how it would be mainstream. Like, as Stephen says, being finding stuff in the middle of a TV show, 
not sure. Find yourself in, in maybe a, a music concert. That's quite a different experience again. Um, and there's been one or two other other interesting things outside of TV that I've seen. I went to the uh, Dreaming Stanley Kubrick exhibition at Somerset House where you could put yourself in the middle of 2001 as, they, as they're jogging around the spaceship. And that's really exciting because that is a, a world you know and love and suddenly you're stepping into one of, your, one of a, a, classic, a classic movie. And some sports things as well. But I think overall, for me, it still feels like... It's, it's all about wearing thing. the headset. It's yeah. like when 3D glasses, the effect is a brilliant... But you don't want. Nobody wants to wear the glasses. It's it, until we can do this without headsets, without whatever. At the moment, it's better to just take hallucinogenic drugs. <laughs> Class ones all the way. <laughs> the early experiments with international news, I think, are quite interesting. And, and again, it is how much you would spend time doing it. But I think you know, if you want to understand life in a refugee camp or whatever, and obviously you can't know really what it's like but if you want to get you know a feel for what it looks like and have a look around inside that the way that's been used by some news reports i think is quite interesting so you know experiential stuff just to get a, a flavor of something yeah, look, at, look at the way the cinemas you know invested in 3d and then they all went back to 2d people don't want that much mm. a change if it causes if you have to do a lot for it you see what i mean they want it but they want it incrementally and they want it without any fuss We'll be doing this podcast in a fortnight, all wearing these glasses yeah. and the headsets, Stephen. I feel like I'm in a virtual reality world. I feel like I'm in Westworld right now. <laughs> we are living, I can't in, a, tell we are living in a 3D world. I can't tell whether you're a robot or not. <laughs> Isn't it a case like everything else, we have to wait for the porn adopters to, to, to exactly. get through it? Exactly. We'll you know, when they bring out porn in, in virtual reality, then that I'll definitely road test that one. <laughs> Uh, moving on, uh, long-standing BBC exec Nick Fraser revealed this week he is leaving the corporations to start up Yadu, a Netflix-style service for documentaries. He's financing feature-length docs up to the value of half a million pounds and has commissioned original shorts for the site as well as a pig documentary called Oink and a film about Gorka's recent legal troubles. Uh, Robin, as a, as a fan of uh, BBC Storyville, what do, you think of, uh, what do you think of Nick's move? Well, I think it's interesting. I think he's, you know, he, uh, while at Storyville, he did do a little bit of experimentation. There was, there was a time when he put a, a number of kind of younger skewing docs like Pussy Wright and uh, the great... Hip hop, Scottish hip hop, hip hop hoax. Great hip hop hoax. Yeah, uh, those films online, and I think that was great. That created a bit of a buzz around some kind of slightly younger skewing docs. I think without the BBC Storyville brand, um, uh, my fear is how this will get marketed and how this will catch on. You know how how this content will spread and people will, will want to go to this side as opposed to just share a bit of content. Um, and it'll be up against you know the likes of of Vice and other kind of slightly like, younger edgier brands. So yeah, it draws out a little bit on that. Um, but it's interesting that he's saying that Storyville does skew that bit younger than perhaps people realise, and there there is an appetite for. Uh, these kind of films out there. It's just going to be another service that we have to pay a monthly cost for, whether it's Spotify or yeah. Netflix well, or Amazon. Well, that's it. And I think while, it's, while there's a charge, I'm not sure who's going to go to it other than films. Nine a month for documentaries. I Would you pay that? I, I really don't see myself... Cheaper than a that. pint. Yeah, I mean, when you say it like that... I, Depending on the content, I mean, if if you showed me what the content was, I probably would go. Oh, hang on! Well, if they had but the idea to the next making a murder of, but you know, the idea they are, they are of, up against yeah, but the idea like of, of young people guaranteed to do this, I, I think it's very ambitious. Yeah. It's sort of like Water Presents, but with a paid for service. So we living yeah. in a world where well, you know, if you can, if you know, if three ninety nine to pay for it yourself, if you're if you're young, is a big commitment. You know what I mean? Especially if you've got things like Vice for free. Yeah. You know? Or feeling for it free, yeah. BBC Three, the kind all, of know. deals they can land if they can get simultaneous release or soon after release of like big cinema documentaries, then great. But then they're up against 
Netflix and the others for, for that. So We're living in a world where niche, everything's going to become more and more niche, whether you like feature-length documentaries or you like pig documentaries, there's going to be an SVOD service for that, right? Yeah, no, I mean, it's, it's the, the, you know, the more films out there, the better, but it's an odd one, this, you know, it's, 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 it looks great on paper, I just can't see it really mm. pushing through. I mean, I think word of mouth might help, you know, if somebody says, I've just seen Oink, and it's amazing, you know, I remember when it was capturing the Freedmans a few yeah. years ago, and people started to talk about that, and it was like, well, hang on, and I finally watched it, and it was like, <gasps> you know, and so... You know, once once the content starts to take off, I think then mm. the model. But might... how often do the films like that come around? They, they don't. They, they, you know, that's like saying you know we all want a big hit. Of course we all do, but they're not they're not that easy to, to come up with, and they're not guaranteed. It's like, it's it's a, you know to me this is, a re, this is quite a, a mm. really ambitious and 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 I, I hope he pulls it off. I really mm. do. And it is a blow to, to story film and, and to you know to to the to, to documentary of the BBC where he has been. You know, a a great non-corporate voice over thirty odd years. So you know, well, good good luck to Nick. Um, That's your news. Thanks to Stephen and Robin. Next up on the show, broadcast reporter Miranda Blaisby talks to writer Jack Thorne about National Treasure. He talks about the Operation U Tree style drama as well as some of his other projects. We'll hear from Jack in just a moment, but first, a clip. As news of his arrest hits the public, Paul visits his estranged daughter. This stuff in the papers. What stuff's that? Well, you've not seen it. Of course I've seen it. I was just wondering whether you'd mention it or not. You don't think they've been here? You just say no comment. Yeah, yeah, I know. Yeah, and I know. It's going to be hard for you. So I'm just here to say... I support you. Oh, that's moving, Dad. Thank you. We had Billy and Francis over for the bank holiday, did you know? Yep. I think they only come to us because we give them more chocolate than their dad. You let Francis eat chocolate? Well, shouldn't I? Why was remember you giving me a look when I ate it? She's as skinny as a rake, that girl. She could do some flesh on her bones. Well, that's an interesting thing to say. Is it? Ideas of a female shape that neither me or my daughter, according to you, conform to. Isn't that interesting? National Treasure is the story of a man called Paul Finchley, who is married to Mari Finchley, who is played by Julie Walters, and has a daughter called Dee Finchley, who's played by uh, Andrea Riseborough. And uh, it's the story of those three as he is accused of historic sex crimes. You've said before that the way it all came about was you met with George Faber, yes. who founded The Forge, the yes. production company behind it, um, and he took you up for lunch. Yes. How did that meeting go? George is a very charming and interesting man. Most of the lunch was just him talking about TV and him giving me notes on stuff that had been made which was very interesting in terms of him just saying you got this right and this wrong which is you know George has got the most incredible brain for television and then about halfway through he said I think someone needs to tell a story about this the thing about George is he is you do trust his judgment about everything him saying I think it's time you kind of go okay and then you try and sort of man up and be ready for it because it's a very scary issue most of the stuff when you do it wrong all you're doing is damage to your own professional reputation when you do this wrong you're doing damage to a lot of people and so it's one that I thought very carefully about but decided in the end that I thought he was right and that we should try and do it 
because obviously it's quite a live topic it's it's still going on and as you say it affects a lot of people yeah i mean that people are carrying these scars for 40 50 years these are people who haven't had their voices heard and so the fact that you're responsible for uh, getting those voices out there that's a huge huge task you said that you learned through doing the project you've learned that rehearsal is much more important yeah. than perhaps you thought it was before. Yeah, so Mark Munden, who's the director of National Treasure and a very, very brilliant man, he believes in rehearsals. I mean, I'm from theatre background, so I've always loved uh, rehearsals and I've always loved working with actors in that close quarters and building a character. But I'd never experienced rehearsals like this in television, where he would sit there and he would methodically work through every single scene and he'd spend time on every single scene and he'd take notes on every single scene so that when it came to filming, the actors knew exactly what he wanted them to do and he knew exactly what he wanted to do. And it was just extraordinary seeing how the transformation in them all and these are not ordinary actors these are extraordinary actors and through this process I, I think they became even more extraordinary it was it was an incredible thing to watch and you've had quite a busy year you've done the Harry Potter play which is still on at the moment um, yep. you're doing His Dark Materials for the BBC and you've been unveiled as one of the 10 writers behind Channel 4's Electric Dreams. Yes. I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about that, how that project started and how you ended up getting involved with that. Electric Dreams? Yes. So I am a big Philip K. Dick fan. As with all these things, you get sent an email generally and someone says, how do you fancy it? And you kind of go, okay, that that sounds exciting. And then you hear the sort of, I'm a massive Battlestar Galactica fan. So the fact that Ronald D. Moore is involved in it, you go, okay, Ronald D. Moore's involved. Philip K. Dick's involved. This should work. I said, yeah, I'm interested. And then they sent me all the short stories that they were interested in. and uh, But everything was sort of on the table. And then we decided on the one that I was going to try and do. And, and then I've been working on trying to do it okay you know. and which one's that oh, i don't know say, <laughs> sorry 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 can you think of another project that you've been involved in of this sort of ambition where you've got 10 different writers working on 10 different episodes it's going to be interesting and um but it's like those sort of old anthology things that the bbc used to do where they used to do shakespeare retold or they used to do chaucer retold uh, of just being interviewed with julie walters and uh, she did an amazing wife of bath if you remember for the bbc about well, it must have been 15 years ago now. And I always loved those sorts of shows. Uh, and I think those were uh, different writers each time. I think the thing that makes this different is that it's Philip K. Dick and doing justice to his work. I mean, there, there have been projects that have done justice, but they're not many. And uh, this is an opportunity to sort of see how big that man's brain was. And it was an extraordinarily big brain. You, you started back on Skins... Yes. Shameless. What was it like, sort of starting your All career? All except produced by George Faber. <laughs> yes, <laughs> yeah. Well, actually, the start of my career was doing readings in a room in Dulwich. Um, <laughs> but my big break, if you like, was doing a play at the Bush Theatre. I did a play called When You Cure Me Then. And Brian Elsley, who is the mastermind behind Skins, along with his son Jamie, came and saw it. And that was sort of my starting point, that they saw that and saw that I... They thought I had potential to write for teenagers and so started this sort of uh, thing. And uh, I think I've I've been lucky ever since, really. I don't quite understand how lucky I've got, really, but um keep trying to do my best, you know. And what, what's your sort of process of writing like? Like, do you sort of lock yourself in a room to make sure that you get finished by a certain time or are you a bit more free with yourself? 
oh, I lock myself in a room, but I don't have a certain time in my head. It's like whenever it's done. Uh, life's got very different recently because I've just had a son. It used to be, even in a marriage, it used to be that I would just disappear for days at a time. To write, I've got to adjust to how I can do that with him involved without feeling like an errant dad. And the thing is, yeah, he's the first thing that's made me sort of want to leave my computer, which is no offence to my wife. But, you know, like, you know, he was the first thing that just kind of like, you know, it's just like, yeah, I should go and see how he's doing. And, and going forward into the future, what, what does the uh, sort of landscape of British drama look like and where do you see yourself sort of fitting into it? My wife is in comedy and she manages comedians. And comedy, I'd say, is undervalued at the moment in that not many people are making it. New voices aren't being allowed uh, a way through. And maybe that's because, you know, when when it was successful, new voices weren't actually being brought through. So, you know, they didn't look after the base well enough. At the moment, drama is the most, I think, really exciting. You know, you've got Peter Bowker, Sally Wainwright, Russell, Paul, I mean, all these people doing amazing work. I hope we're doing enough to bring through the young voices that will keep drama as being as valued as possible so that we've got a thriving industry still in 10 years' time. The thing that Skins did, which other shows, I can't think they have equivalent of another show, is Skins absolutely staked its fortune on, on bringing through young voices. And I hope that there's a show out there that can do that. I know how important it is. I don't know that I'm the person to do it. I hope there is someone uh, like Brian who is prepared to put in the legwork to make that sort of show work because Brian had to work so hard with us because I think those are the shows that will sustain this industry in the future. And BBC Three has got really interesting. I think that they've surprised a lot of people with how well the digital, uh, you know, not just Fleabag, which is extraordinary, obviously, and um, Phoebe's a very good mate of mine, so I always knew she was brilliant, but I'm so pleased that the world knows she's brilliant now. But, you know, um, uh, what was the one, the show with Jodie Comer in that was really good? 13, 13, fantastic. Do you know what I mean? Like, you know, so that bodes well for the future, that sort of stuff, and, you know, E4's still making interesting work, and so maybe, maybe these things are coming through. Jack Thorne there. National Treasure ends its four-part run on Channel 4 next Thursday. Previews time now. Back with me are Stephen and Robin. Our first preview is Sky Atlantic drama The Young Pope. The series follows Jude Law's Lenny Bellardo, the youngest and first American pope in the history of the church, dealing with the secretive Vatican. Directed by Paolo Sorrentino, the eight-part series also stars Diane Keaton. First, a clip. Two Vatican advisors consider one of the immediate issues of the new pope, having to change the merchandise. I don't know if it's a good idea, Sophie. I'm afraid it's premature. Premature, Your Eminence? The time it takes to develop and update the merchandise means we have to move right away before the fakes start appearing. Crooks are always so much faster. Who knows how to do it? Criminal organizations are faster because they don't forgive inefficiency. At the risk of seeming too materialistic, Your Eminence, do you know how much the Vatican coffers lose for every day that passes without any new paper merchandising on the market? Not exactly. Now do you understand why I need the Holy Father's immediate approval? Yes, I do, but you don't know him. And believe me, he's not an easy one. He's a difficult, unpredictable man. Having gone to a Jesuit Catholic boys' school, that brings back terrifying memories. Uh, Stephen, what did you think of the young Pope? I found it genuinely mind-blowing in every sense of the word. The first 
20 minutes, I thought this is the worst thing I've ever seen. Why? The most sort of Euro artsy fartsy bollocks. Couldn't couldn't get to grips with it. Couldn't work it out. Couldn't. Then it started to kind of you know knit together a bit. Then it suddenly got going. Then I was obsessed by it. And then I watched the next episode as well. So I watched the second episode because I was gripped, and it just went spectacularly mad. So narratively, it's really interesting because you can't tell where it's going. You can't tell where the story's going. And I ended up by finishing it. I was like, oh my god! And I wanted to talk to people about it. I wanted to say, was this is is he a good pope? Is he a good Catholic? Is he anti-Catholic? I couldn't work it out. It was genuinely. Genuinely kind of blew my mind. It takes a while to get going, especially given that there's no dialogue for the first eight minutes. No, and then there's a bit of a rug pull as well. I only saw the first episode, which is a, an odd mixture of kind of real kind of ponderousness mm. uh, with quirky moments. Um, and I've seen earlier reviews bring uh, comparisons to things like Twin Peaks, which is, is basically not a Twin Peaks show, but it's Twin Peaks in terms of here's a Hollywood director or a, a European director coming to TV and, and doing something in a very... Uh, their own, putting their own imprint on something which can't really be held in by a regular so I, I TV it, drama. I thought, I thought it felt like European art house. Yeah. You know, very Euro, not Hollywood at all. I mean, that's the exact opposite of that. Oh, yeah. I, I, what I meant you know, was a film director rather than yeah. say, a Hollywood director. But very Euro in a slightly weird, pretentious, mm. uh, slightly indulgent way. You know, the, the shots were long and the, there was, you know, there was, a, there was some odd shots There's in There's a lot it. of I mean, silences. Was... But the thing is, I'm, I, I do have problems with Jude Law. <laughs> um, the only time I really film I really like him in is the Tantum Mr. Ripley, where he plays a spoiled posh public school. So you school didn't boy. like him as a so, chain smoking American. I couldn't work out what he was, what he was, who he was in this. Really, that's the problem. You can't work out what the character of the Pope is. Is he real or is, is he, he not? Is he real? Is he nice? Does is he drink he cherry coke? You know, it, it just it, it, tonally the films it's, it's all over the place. Mm. It's, you know, but but see to me the films. Well, I'm calling it a film. Mm. See, it, it felt like a film. The program comes together a bit when Diana Keaton arrives. Suddenly, there's a bit of a plot. There's a bit of a backstory. There's a bit of a yeah. Some, it starts, but it's, it's a hell of a long watch to get to that point. Yeah. I think people are going to tune in thinking it's going to be a big glossy HBO, and then they're going to go, "Oh, hang on, it's one of these weird Italian artsy films." It's, you know, Pasolini touches and it, it's not really going like to be one of and... Sky Atlantic's blockbuster hits, is it? Uh, it I mean, I don't know. I mean it's in. not Westworld. You know what I mean? It's no. not as good as Westworld, but it's got. You know, there are, you could make comparisons with elements of the West Wing, of Game of Thrones and Power Struggle, of Tony Soprano. Well, Diane Keaton is Mrs. Landingham, isn't yeah. she? And so yeah. there's, a, there's, a bit, there's, a, there's, a, there's a bit of that kind of political power games that you've seen in a number of those HBO shows. So it will be interesting to see where it goes. But the thing, I wasn't gripped by part one. And I, I, yeah, I would, time permitting, give it a couple more to see what, whether I actually like it or not. The thing that really impressed me was the money that's been spent on screen. The locations and the set direction, or the art direction, they look like the Vatican had just said, yeah, help yourself, film what you like. Sistine Chapel, yeah, it's yours. Everything looked like it was in the location, in the place. It was, I'd never seen anything that authentic before in terms of locations. So the money's definitely been spent. Well, we'll see if it's a big hit on October 27th when The Young Pope airs on Sky Atlantic. Finally, Boy George's 1970s, Save Me From Suburbia. Hosted by the Culture Club frontman and produced by IWC, the documentary traces the star's rise against a backdrop of industrial unrest, racism and terrorism, as well as examining his musical influences from Bowie to glam, glitter and punk. But first, a clip. Boy George reminisces with his mum. 
It's one of the nation's newest giant comprehensives and in fact a school of tomorrow for the children of today. In the 70s, teachers just didn't like kids. If you came from a certain type of family, you were marked the minute you went into school. My older brother had been arrested, you know, he'd been arrested for stealing lead off the school roof where I went to. So the minute I went to school, it was like, you're an O'Dowd, you're trouble. They don't want you to have a personality. They don't want you to be an individual. They want you to shut up. And, you know, as you can see... And unfortunately, <laughs> Georgie could not shut up. <laughs> never. <laughs> uh, someone else who can't shut up, Stephen. Uh, you grew up near Boy George, apparently. I did, yeah. I, uh, I grew up about half a mile away from where he lived in, um, in south-east London, basically. Were you friends? No, he's about ten years older than me. Uh, but but we basically, it, this was my story a little bit as well. The, the same music, the same kind of culture. And it was interesting to see, because essentially this is a sort of story of Boy George, but it is also the story of the 70s. So you, you get quite a lot out of it in terms of the, the, the sort of social history. And one of the things that, that made me laugh was that when they talk about violence. And it's true. In the early 70s, everyone was getting beaten up all the time. It was completely normal. You saw it on sitcoms, you saw it in dramas, and you got you saw it down the street. People were having fights, punch-ups. And it was funny when he talked about that because you, that doesn't happen anymore. Now that's kind of like something you'd see in the Daily Mail. But it was, a, it was casual sort of violence was a, was a heavy presence in the 70s. And that's what I liked about this. It had a bit more detail. I learned a little bit more about Boy George and also remembered my own sort of past. It was, it was a perfect little viewing. It was a nice way of putting the story of Boy George through the lens of the 70s, right? Yeah, no, I thought so. I thought the, that, that mixture was great. I mean, at first I thought, oh, here we, here we go again. We've had the Boy George biopic on, on, on mm. television. You know, compared to his actual sort of level of musical fame which was in some ways quite fleeting in the in the 80s it, it, he seems to have a you know, make a little go a very long way but actually when i started watching he was a very engaging guide i loved seeing him with his mum and mm. hearing her sort of comment on things and you know the, the tough thing this this pulls off is there were some new nuggets in there that i haven't seen across every other bbc4 music documentary or mm. uh, over the last few years it's interesting that this is at the heart of this new BBC Two Saturday Night. You know, th there is a different prism through which they're looking at arts. It's not just here's some performance. It, it, there is a bit more meat to the bones. I also like the fact that most of the, the other people in it, the, the, some of the old has-been rockers and people, were, were also telling their story. You got quite a lot of people, musicians' stories. And, and so, A, there's that fantastic look at his face now, quality of certain people, Martin Degville, for example. But also seeing, you know... Um, Susie Sue was on there, etc. And, you know, you, you, you start to make sense of there were just people hanging mm. about. They were starting to make friends. And then suddenly they all became pop stars. And there was this very shared kind of suburban consciousness that created these 80s pop stars. But this was the 70s. This was their pre-fame life. And I thought it was really interesting and, and really entertaining. And an incredible selection of big hats. <laughs> Some great big hats. That's what we'd expect from George. Yeah. Um, and also, you know, he, he's a genial guy. You know, he'll he'll tell something always with a, always with a laugh, and he'll he'll put the records on and sing along and stuff. And I think there, there's something nice about sharing those kind of yeah. intimate moments with them as well. And it's a good story. If you've never heard it, it's an amazing story. You know yeah. what I mean? It, it, there was a there was a point when I thought, oh, I've seen this before, but then it just started to get a little bit richer. I mean, they could have done a bit more social cu culture and a little less Boy George, but I think the mix was good. You know, it was... but done differently too if it had been on BBC Four. Yeah, no, it felt it felt a different approach, and and certainly the Talking Heads. I thought the Talking Heads were really lifted it because they brought their stories too, mm. and that's what felt good. They weren't just commenting on; they were they were part of it. That you know, and and that whole element of when the people when the you know ex punks that got into the, the new romanticism and all that element of tribal youth culture that doesn't exist anymore. 
Well, people can see uh, Boy George's 1970s Save Me From Suburbia on Saturday, the 8th of October on BBC Two. And that's your lot for this episode. Thanks to Stephen, thanks to Robin, thanks to Miranda, and thanks to Jack. I'm Peter White, and the producer is Matt Hill. See you on the other side. You've been listening to Broadcast, talking TV, recorded at Maple Street Studios. 